This message is from the Axis Church, a redeemed community of missionaries living for the fame of the real Jesus. For more information about Jesus or the Axis vision in Nashville, go to theaxischurch.org. Let me pray, and we're going to hit away here at Matthew, and, uh, and I pray that we're blessed by our time with Jesus this morning. Jesus, thank you for, Lord, um, working hard and fighting to keep yourself the superhero of our church. Lord, I pray, Lord, that that will remain true and that'll be true and it'll grow even more true in the days ahead. Lord, thank you for being the big deal. Thank you for being the deal. Thank you for being the idea, not just the big idea. Lord, thank you for your saving work for us. Thank you for building up your church. Thank you for the spirit that you provide for us both personally and then communally, Lord, that we get to have fellowship with one another because of the unity that you bring through the flexing of your spirit among us. Lord, do these things. Speak mightily, Lord, to us today. Lord, I pray Lord, that, you, that you do just manifest yourself. Just look awesome, Lord, today in these people's eyes and in our hearts, Lord, will we see you for who you really are. In Christ's name, I pray. Amen. Okay, so if you haven't already, land in Matthew chapter 8. We're going to be starting in verse 23 and going through. Now, chapters and verses were added much later. That's why we're, we're transcending a chapter. You know, like you're going from chapter 8 through on to chapter 9. It seems a little odd, uh, but it's all one thought. It's all joined together by the word and. Okay, it's, it's one big chunk that Matthew gives us here to consider Jesus and his power, his authority. Okay, so let's look here uh, in uh, Matthew chapter 8, starting in verse 23. And when he got into the boat, his disciples followed him. And behold, there rose a great storm. Okay, in the original Greek language, that word great is megas. Megas. Does anybody know what word we use in the English that's based off of the word megas? Take a hit at it. Mega. All right. Significant. Now, now the time of, uh, even now, all throughout the history of the Sea of Galilee, that region, it's been recorded even today, this could happen there. Because the bowl of the hills uh, around the Sea of Galilee, at any moment, a, a, a breeze, a, a burst of wind hits a certain way, and there just becomes turmoil in the Sea of Galilee, enough to raise the waves, bring the tide in. It's crazy how quickly um, the Sea of Galilee can change based on just a simple breeze. That would happen all the time. There would be storms like that happen and just pop up often. This, though, with the word megas, with the word great, tells us that it's even more significant than a typical storm that they would have encountered on the sea. They were expert fishermen. They wouldn't have gone out if they felt like a storm was going to happen. This was out of nowhere. This was sudden. They would not have gone out stubbornly knowing the storm was going to meet them. They were shocked by this. So they, they get in the boat and they go, and behold, there rose a great storm on the sea. So great that the boat was being swamped by the waves. The, the, the word there is covered. All right? When you cover something, you don't usually see it. It's like wrapping paper. It's like a rug. It hides things. Okay, The boat was covered by the waves. It's not just a little sea foam blowing in the boat. It's an incredible storm, and Jesus is asleep. 
And this is a beautiful picture of the humanity of Jesus Christ. Yes, he was God, but Hebrews puts it this way too, that he experienced life like we did, and he was tempted in every way. And even here, we see a glimpse of Jesus being physically exhausted after teaching the Sermon on the Mount, after healing numerous people. He's in a deep sleep, so, so deep that even the waters that were coming in the boat, weren't, uh, they were not waking him up. The boat would have been the size of about this stage, 10 feet by 30 feet. And these men were in very, very real danger of sinking. They were in real danger of dying. Yet these were experienced fishermen. Some of them were professional, the best of the best. And yet they could not fight this storm. And one of their greatest fears in this culture was that of the sea, of the water, the deep, the abyss, as it is referred to commonly. It's the place where scripture tells us that our sins are placed is in the depths of the sea. So there's not only a fear of water, because these guys weren't swimmers. You didn't get swimming lessons like you do nowadays, okay? You didn't do that. There was a, a radical fear of water. These men viewed this as not just a physical fear, but a spiritual fear. They were being overtaken by something powerful. Now, if you don't know how to swim, you might look at water and, and you're terrified where other people are out on a boat and they just don't think anything about it. I mean, we're probably going to hop off this thing at one point anyway, being stupid and swim around some. Uh, but you look at it and you're terrified. You're the guy who's on the boat who is not having fun at all until you get back on land. Uh, I have friends like that. And they can face, they can face the fear, of, but it's even a greater element of fear with these disciples than what you would experience with the water if you couldn't swim because of the spiritual dynamic of what the water symbolized, okay? So we really can't even really understand properly what these men would have felt. But Jesus is at peace. Jesus is trusting in God. I believe that he is resting physically because he's resting in God, knowing that God is aware and that he doesn't sleep and that he is in absolute perfect control. So because God is big and because God is in control, Jesus can rest, which speaks into how we can truly experience peace too. It's trusting that he's bigger than our problems, trusting that he can handle it. We can rest if we believe that he is aware and in control. These two radically different postures regarding the same storm, the same storm, there's radical peace, same storm, incredible terror. Same storm. And so they woke him up in verse 25 saying, save us, Lord, we're perishing. And he said to them, why are you afraid, O you of little faith? And then he rose and rebuked the winds and the sea, and there was a great, exact same word. There's other words for great, but here Matthew's careful to use the exact same word that he used earlier. A great calm. Mark chapter 4, verse 38 a parallel passage, which means Mark shares the same story from his perspective instead of Matthew's. And Matthew adds that the disciples looked at Jesus dead in the eyes and said, Lord, don't you care? Questioning his ability, his concern, his compassion. These disciples are literally saying, we're sinking, we're drowning, we're dying. Disaster is upon us. Save us. 
It's interesting, they, they call him Lord, they ask him to save, but then they state a fact that they're dying. So they believe that he could help, but their panic has them knowing that they, he, he can't do anything, but they're asking him to do something because they believe he can do something, but the terror and the panicking of the moment, the anxiety, they're contradicting themselves, which happens when you find really anyone who's in a true panic. They don't make these logical connections. They don't make sense a lot of times. But an observation I made here in studying this passage uh, for the second time is that the physical storm outside these disciples is matched by a spiritual storm inside these men. There's mental anguish and struggle, but there's physical anguish and struggle. As they look at Jesus and they wonder, has Jesus met his match? As they stare death in the face, is there really anything that can be done to change our situation? The bottom line here is that the disciples panicked because straight up fear of death had seized absolutely every piece of fiber of their being. They were controlled by this fear of death. They knew nothing else but to cry themselves to death. I don't know if you've seen the movie Titanic with Leonardo DiCaprio. If you haven't, there's a spoiler. It sinks. It's kind of rough at the end. Um, do you want, yeah, anyway, um, sorry about that. Uh, in there though, something profound sticks out to me more than anything else in that whole movie. The, do you remember the, the ensemble there at the end? I guess that's what you call it. Like the, the violinist, the, the stringed section. Remember that they were playing, they're having a good time. And then boom, the, the iceberg, they start sinking they wrap up everything and they go their separate ways. They take a few steps and they stop and they go back and they unpack their instruments and they begin playing again because they're, they know that there's nothing that's going to change with their situation. We might as well just go down doing what we love. We might as well go, it's inevitable, right? That, I think, is a clear picture for where these disciples are at in their panic. They realize nothing is going to change their situation. They're literally just crying their way to death. It's resolved. It's over. And now, I don't know if you've been here before. I don't know if you've had a terrible fall, and you're just kind of abandoned. You're out. No one knows that you're there, and you don't know if you're going to be able to, to heal enough to, to find help or if someone's going to come upon you randomly and help you. Or perhaps there's a car wreck Perhaps you veered off the road and no one knows you're there and you're fighting hard to survive and thinking through what to do, but there's just this inevitability of death that's upon you. For me, it happened in 1998, one of the, I think, yeah, I think it's the only time it's ever happened to me. It's when I was held at gunpoint with a bunch of rebels in Northeast India. Uh, there was a tribal war between the Cookies and the Nagas, and one tribe thought we were helping the other tribe and we were just driving through. Um, and I remember being there with an AK pointed to my back uh, with a man that I had no idea what he was saying. I, had, I didn't understand the language. I didn't understand the culture. I was 19, and there was a lot going through my mind. Um, a lot of it was, this is, the, this is the end. This is really how it's going to go down for me. This is sad. I hadn't even started my family yet. This is not the way I would have drawn it up. So I don't know if you've had a moment like that where you just were certain. So I'm, I'm saying all that just to, to point out, I know a lot of times we just read through stories without truly trying to consider 
the entire situation. And I think that's getting at the place of where these, the desperate situation of the despairing disciples, of where they were. And in the middle of all this, in the middle of all this terror and panic, Jesus is asleep. And I imagine being in such a deep sleep, I mean, that's, that's a deep, deep sleep, that if when he was awakened that he would need a second to assess the situation, right? I mean, you would think if he's sleeping through that type of storm, that he might just need to rub his eyes a little bit and listen and look around just for a second to, to, to kind of gain perspective and to check how things are. Or perhaps he would pray immediately, Perhaps he would just sit up and say, what? Oh, snap his fingers, done. He could do that. Perhaps he would uh, begin just taking over as a leader, as a general, as a captain, and just giving orders and inspiring courage in these disciples to begin rowing and throwing the buckets of water. And I don't know, just there's different scenarios of what could happen. But Jesus didn't respond in these ways, but he did respond. He did not ignore these guys. He doesn't, I think this is important for, for Jesus, understanding him here, he, he doesn't match their panic. The panic of the disciples, the terror, he doesn't get up and he's not matched by it. He's like, what? Say what right now? Huh? Where? Let's go. Let's, you know, but he just sits up and there's a, there's a presence, there's a poise. That's, that's what the Savior does. He remains poised and focused and ready, not startled, not caught off guard, not surprised, but poised. And he, he doesn't respond in any of these ways. He responds rather by asking a question. He wants to talk about it. He wants to talk about the situation. I find this crazy, okay? Especially the nature of his question when he says, now why, what, why are you guys afraid? What is it that you're afraid of? I mean, it, I guess it could be more obvious, perhaps. It's a stretch to think it could be more obvious. The, the, the seas are shaking, okay? They're, they're, we're drowning. The waves are crashing. Lightning, did you see the lightning? Did, do you hear the thunder? The boat's going down. Peter, we don't even know where Peter's at. The rudder's falling off. Like, who wouldn't be afraid in the situation? The rain, the thunder, the lightning. We can't see the, the floor of the boat. Why are we afraid? We're afraid because, because we are going to die. We are absolutely out of control, face to face with death. And then in a moment of such intensity, this rebuke comes out from Jesus towards nature. Other parallel passages record is, peace, be still. And immediately, there was a great calm and the disciples marveled. So that, that tells me something. That tells me that the, the great calm had to be significant, unparalleled calm, like more than what calm would normally be. Calm can be calm. A great calm, radically different. And it's an accelerated type of calm. It's, it's a dramatic, incredible, rare, uncanny calm. So that tells me that you, have you walked um, perhaps on the shore of the beach when there's, there's lots of wind normally on the beach, but maybe during a storm or right before a storm and the winds are just like heavy, like you can't hardly hear because the winds are just cutting past your ears. 
and you're pressing into the storm. Now imagine as you walk into that wind, if that wind were to just stop and you're depending on it, like you're walking into it, facing it, but if it just stops, you're, you know, you're, you're going to have to take a couple seconds. I imagine that happened when Jesus says, be still, that the disciples stamper around, but I also believe with this great calm, there's not a cloud in the sky and there's, there's seagulls and there's the sun's out and the water looks like glass. There's not even a ripple. And you hear the creaking of the boat just barely moving. And the, the boat's dry, their hair's dry, the, their clothes are dry. It was a great calm. And the men marveled, saying, look at verse 27, what sort of man is this? That even the winds and the sea obey him. Who is this guy? Now, they didn't know Jesus could handle this. They'd never seen him do this before. They'd never seen Jesus flex himself in this way over nature with his power and authority. There was chaos. And then Jesus. And then calm. Such a calm. His power, his authority. This is Jesus. He continues to show himself as powerful in verse 28. And when he came to the other side... To the country of the Gadarenes, two demon-possessed men met him coming out of this graveyard, okay? <laughs> it's not a cool experience. These guys coming out of the tombs, all right? That's, this isn't October 31st, like, playing this out like a, like a haunted house. This is real life, y'all. Um, this is scary. So fierce that no one could pass that way. Now, this would be terrifying. Mark 5 and Luke 8, parallel passages, same story, different perspectives, both record this as the demons seeing Jesus and waiting for him there at the dock. They're ready. And you could kind of get a sense at this point when the disciples, after coming through that crazy storm, that they're looking at the shore, they're like, oh man, that's some of those demons over there. And like they get close to the dock and they're like kind of like getting in single file behind Jesus, like, go ahead, you know, you're kind of like pushing, throwing Jesus under the, boat, uh, under the bus. Uh, sorry, it's a terrible pun. And uh, so, but people, <laughs> that's terrible. People knew about this place. People were aware of this. They stayed away from this area. This entire hillside in this region, it was known for being ceremonially unclean. It's the land of Gentiles, disgusting pigs everywhere, which were unclean for Jews to touch. Add on top of that, demon-possessed people everywhere. This was kind of like a leper colony. It, it, you know, there's just, you, you stay there and we'll have life over here. It's like the government's way of saying, we'll keep the trouble over here and we'll let everybody else feel safe over here. Crime and terrorism, it's contained over here. If you stay there, everybody will be okay. This is the penalty box of all things deplorable. And now, now I think it would, it would be hard to find a place dirtier and, and more terrifying than that. I was thinking about this because I, I don't like using uh, generalizations. I don't like speaking of things I'm not certain of. And so I think a comparable place in this day and age would be Gehenna where they burned the dead and they burned trash in the region. I think that might be dirtier, but it's controlled by the government. This place was just kind of like taped off, and you didn't know what was going to happen. There was, there was no control there over these guys. So in that way, I think perhaps it's even scarier 
than Gehenna. But Jesus goes here. Did Jesus know these guys were going to meet him? Yeah, I think so. And he went there on purpose. Now, culturally, these disciples had to be terrified again. The storm, crazy. The demoniacs, crazy. My question for us as a church, as we consider 2015, where are these places in the Nashville area? You know, the places that you don't want to go to. Notorious places, dangerous places, dirty places, unsafe places. But places where if Jesus were to land in Nashville, it'd be one of the very first places he'd want to go. Much like the disciples, I want to encourage us all as a church to follow Jesus into those places in 2015. Let's see what happens here. Verse 29, and behold, they cried out, what have you to do with us? And they, they get it right. Oh, son of God, have you come to torment us before the time? Now, this is speaking of the, the, the day of destruction for all the demonic world that they'll experience. This is actually something that will happen in the future for us. But in this day and age, these uh, demons were referring to what is uh, still prophetic in the book of Daniel. So they're referring back to the 70 weeks piece of prophecy that is yet to be fulfilled in Daniel in regarding the destruction of the demons, okay? So they're incredible uh, biblical scholars here understanding their own peril. The very ones who stand to torment others are there standing being tormented by Jesus as he stands there the truth in confidence of his power and authority. These doom-possessed men, they caused such fear over anybody that would ever come close to them. But here they're trembling at the very presence of Jesus. They're trembling in front of him. But notice this. Jesus looks beyond these demons to the heart of those people being possessed by the demons. Jesus looks beyond the demon to the person that he knows is there. Everyone else is judging these men as demons, and they're putting them over here in that place. But Jesus knows there's a person there. There's a person there made in the very image of my Father. And he's speaking to the heart of those people. These guys have been categorized. You know, they, they probably ended up being possessed and over the course of their possession, actually losing their identity. Where, you know, that used to be Jason. Let me use your name if you don't mind. Used to be, that used to be Jason. That's, you know, Jason, the demoniac. That's not how they're referred to anymore. I think this has progressed so far. That's just a demon. Don't even remember the type of person that he was before. Let's not miss what's going on here in this text. You may be known for your circumstance that's labeled you by your past. But Jesus has come to redefine you and set you free, to no longer categorize you the way that you have been categorized, right or wrong, deserved or undeserved. When Jesus looks at these men 
and frees them. That tells me volumes about what he wants to do around us. And you can argue whether there's demons or not or whatever. I can tell you there's people who are extremely oppressed by alcohol, by drug abuse, by pornography, by pride that makes people do cruel things, anger, rage. We are controlled by a lot of stuff that we don't want to necessarily label demonic. But the type of control, spiritual control, that certain things places over us is very much demonic. So we don't need to look at these guys as something extreme that doesn't really happen anymore. Perhaps we need to look at the mirror and be very, very honest. Regardless of your 2014 or your previous years or previous, previous decades of life, Jesus has come to radically overhaul your existence from the inside out, from the past all the way through to eternity. That's the power and the authority that Jesus has and to consider it, it is absolutely fascinating. The torment here that these demons are, are considering, that they're, that, they're, uh, that they're speaking of, is referring to Jesus being light and life and truth, all things that they hate and can't stand. And Jesus standing there could just say the word and they would be obliterated and they're on the moment so they plead to be sent away, knowing that he has the authority to do whatever he says. Verse 30, now a herd of many pigs was feeding at some distance for them, and the demons, be, uh, the demons begged him, saying, if you cast us out, send us away into the herd of the pigs. If you're following closely with me, has Jesus said anything here since they've hit the dock? <laughs> Nothing. It seems like he should have, but it's just been like this whole one-sided conversation where these jokers hit the dock and they begin pleading for mercy. Don't kill us, don't kill us, don't kill us, don't kill us. If you're going to kill us, if you're going to send us away, send us over there. Look over there. That's a good, like, you don't like those. They're bad. Look, send us over there. Immediately pleading for mercy. That's our Savior, y'all. It's beautiful. Powerful. And he said to them, go. And so they came out and went into the pigs. And behold, the whole herd rushed down the steep bank into the sea and were drowned in the waters. The herdsmen, they fled. And going into the city, they told everything. But one thing stuck out above everything else. They told especially of what happened to the demon-possessed men. And behold, all the city... Look here with me. Behold, all the city came out to meet Jesus. And when they saw him, they fell on their knees and began worship. No. It's heartbreaking. I feel like people in our city, wonderful people, talented people, brilliant people, are begging churches and Jesus to leave their life and leave their city because they're saying no to a misunderstood Jesus, to a Jesus that doesn't exist and one that we would probably say no to as well. But there's a real Jesus who is of the most helpful 
purposes to each and every person that needs to be shown and, and told about to other people so that they have an opportunity to say yes to the right Jesus and not send away a phony Jesus, a fake Jesus that doesn't exist anyway. This is what our city needs, and this breaks my heart. When I read that, I read so many people in our city who just, they're fed up with church, they're fed up with Jesus. But I don't, I don't think they're solid views of what the church is, nor solid, accurate views of who Jesus is that they're actually saying no to. And that's what's happening right here in this text. The whole city comes out to meet Jesus. And when they saw him, they begged him to leave their region. Now, they could have been afraid of a number of different things from Jesus coming in, sending all the pigs away and the demons away and establishing a Jewish area. That, that could be a thought. That could be a, a fear that they might have. Or, or that Jesus, a professing Messiah, would come and make this his home. I don't know. Perhaps all of their local economy was based on hogs, and, and we saw what he did with that number of hogs. If he's going to do this with our whole region, we're going to collapse economically. Who knows? Regardless of, of, of some of the root issues as why they wanted Jesus away, the bottom line is they did not see Jesus for who he really was, and they miss out on Jesus. And again, I think there's so many people, even people in this room who are struggling with Jesus, and we're saying no to a Jesus who is not alive, a Jesus who does not exist. We don't have a good view, an accurate view of who Jesus really is. This is our Jesus. This is the, the one in whom we speak of that changes everything. My prayer is that regardless of how surprised you are to be in a church service this morning or that you've given it even another chance that you would see Jesus for who he really is and that you'd welcome him because Jesus loves you and he has come to set you free. And you're here because he is alive and he's real and he cares. I believe you're supposed to hear that. Here, Jesus goes into this graveyard, and he sets captives free, and he redefines these captives. Mark 5 tells us that when the city comes back, that these demon guys, they're sitting at the feet of Jesus, and he's teaching them. It's a beautiful picture of discipleship. He's informing them, transforming them, educating them, teaching them to be sent Now let's see more power than nature, more power over the supernatural realm, and now we see even more extent of his power over physical infirmities. Look at chapter 9, verse 1. And getting into the boat, he crossed over and came to his own city, and behold, some people brought him a paralytic lying on a bed. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, radical words, by the way, take heart, my son, Incredible. Your sins are forgiven. Now we learn from the Gospel of Mark, chapter 2, that this is the moment where the house was packed full of people who Jesus was healing. I mean, it was just an incredible manifestation of his physical power there, over, overpowering physical infirmities, ailments, sicknesses, diseases. And he records it there in Mark that it's so full that, that it's actually, there's people packed around the house that you could not get in the house at all. It was just so full. And so these guys who were carrying their friend on this mat um, do the logical thing and they find a way in. It's a ridiculous thing. They go to someone else's house and begin jackhammering the guy's roof, right? And so Jesus is, 
is healing, and I just imagine him healing, and then all of a sudden there's stuff that starts just kind of raining down on him, like some straw, some, some wood, some, some different particles from the roof begin sprinkling down, and there's light that starts coming through, and yeah, that's somebody ripping the roof off. Um, that's, wow, okay, that's one way to do it. Uh, their aggression, man, the not taking no for an answer that these guys had here and getting their friend to Jesus is it's compelling for me. It's, uh, it models what compassion looks like. And I hope for 2015 that, that we are aggressive in getting people to Jesus. Now, these guys knew they couldn't change their friend, or they would have, but they believed that if they could get their friend to Jesus, that Jesus now, he could do something with them. And this is how we're to operate, I believe, as people who love on our city. I find what Jesus does here to be both wonderful and extremely brilliant. He forgives the, the paralyzed man's sins. He says, be courageous, be encouraged, take heart is what they mean. Be, be courageous. My son, your sins are forgiven. Uh, we brought him here. It was his legs. You know, it's like, uh, that's cool, but he's, he's still on his mat, right? Um, he's paralyzed, but he's forgiven. His greatest need is met. The rest is details. Paralyzed or not, he's forgiven. The heavy lifting is finished. And behold, some of the scribes said to themselves, not, not out loud, not verbally, but to themselves, this man is blaspheming. But Jesus, not knowing their words, but knowing their thoughts, said, why do you think evil in your hearts? For which is easier to say your sins are forgiven or to say rise and walk? So Jesus is essentially saying, look, it's more, much more difficult to forgive someone's sins than to heal someone. But, but to you, it seems harder to heal a paralyzed person. So for your sake, I will prove my power over sickness and over sin by telling this gentleman to get up and walk. See, he says, verse 6, but that you may know that the Son of Man has authority has every right and every bit of power to do so, has authority on earth to forgive sins, he then said to the paralytic, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. He arose, and he went home. The power of Jesus Christ over physical illnesses. The Pharisees, the scribes, like the, the biblical scholars, they throw a flag. They want to penalize Jesus. They throw a flag, blow a whistle, like, whoa, 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 you can't, you can't do that. They were right. The scribes get it right. They nail it, but they also get it wrong. It is true that only God can forgive sin, but Jesus is God in the flesh, and they didn't yet believe this, and so they see this as blasphemy, and what I love to see Jesus do here, man, I, I, I love this picture of Jesus. I, I love how he responds. He doesn't get aggravated. He doesn't get frustrated. He doesn't blow his lid. He cares for these guys. He cares for the ones who are questioning him, who are throwing a flag on him, who are calling him a heretic, a blasphemer. He cares enough to speak true to these guys. He doesn't say, 
to hell with you all. He takes time and he speaks to these skeptics of his work. He speaks to them as to inform them of who he is so they won't miss him. Guys, you're missing me. Hear me, see me. I'm the one the prophets talked about. You see, it says, so that you will know, so that you will learn who I really am. I'm going to do this for you. I find that extremely compelling and beautiful in regards to who Jesus is. Verse 8, with the closing verse for today, when the crowd saw it, they were afraid. I think it was a healthy fear because it produced this in them, that they glorified God. They glorified God, the one who had given such authority to this man, is literally how it should read. So here, Matthew reveals to us the very center of the saving mission of Jesus, the very nature and intent of the mission of Jesus to save people from their sin. It's our greatest need. Physical needs only point to a, our greatest need. And, and as I scanned the room this morning, as I got to shake hands with, with some and I got to see some uh, come in to our gathering while I was sitting on my, in my seat over here, I can't imagine the storms that are, that are raging in your lives today, the, the intensity, the, the power of these storms in your life, the anxiety, the fear the depression, the hostility that you experience that's being caused by a various number of different storms. They're just wreaking havoc in your life and your heart. Now, I know it's difficult, and I know perhaps I haven't deserved the right to even ask you these questions, but if you would, take time to consider what it is that you're most afraid of. What is it that you find yourself daydreaming and then you lock on that one thing and you hate that you remembered it? What is it that, that keeps you up at night? What is it that causes you anxiety? What, what is it that causes you a, a knot in your stomach or your throat to get tight or, or, or maybe the loss of an appetite or just a, a loss of joy? As soon as you think about it, you just become stoic and, and emotionally paralyzed where it's even hard to smile. I believe that Jesus, through what we've learned about him today in this passage, he wants you to know this morning that he's aware of that. And he's not surprised by that. And he cares deeply about that. And he's more powerful than any storm that you're facing. This is who Jesus is. He's the one who has these powers. He's the one who has this authority. He's the one who comes to us and he finds us. He pursues us totally aware of our sin. Never surprised by our sin. Totally aware of the things that make us feel unworthy, that makes us feel dirty or cheap. He's totally aware of the things that have been done to us that causes us to feel like we're no longer good enough and that there's no way that God could be interested in me anymore. Jesus came for those very things. Not just a, a bad attitude, not just a, a curse word here, a curse word there, or speeding or whatever. Of course those things 
But he came even for the things that you're most terrified over. He came to redeem you from your past. He came to bring clarity to your present. He came to establish forever your future. He didn't come for your good things. You don't have those. I don't have those. He came for our sin. He came for your past. He came for your junk. He came for your secrets. This is why Jesus came. No one is too dirty. No one is too far gone. His grace is even deeper than that. Jesus is the one who was sent by God to seek and save the lost and the dirty and the sick sinners like me and like you. He came to save sinners. He came to become sin for us. He came to die Death, he came to kill death. He came to take on the punishment that we deserve. He came to bring victory over death and all things forever. Our greatest problem, it's not physical, it's not financial, it's not mental, it's not professional. Our greatest problem is sin. Our greatest problem is a lack of faith in Jesus Christ and his goodness. And the beautiful good news of the gospel is that when we call out to Jesus, seeking him for deliverance, he responds. He comes to us. He can be trusted and he can handle whatever it is that we have. He took care of our sins and he restored us back into friendship with God through his life and his death and his resurrection. And you get a picture of our salvation through this story where he goes into a foreign land, into the land of the Gentiles, full of dirty pigs, disgusting idolatry, sick people, and he saves them. He doesn't judge them. He doesn't begin pointing fingers at them, running away from them, being passive aggressive as if they're not even there. But he helps them. He changes them. He sets them free. He gives help to what's actually needed, not just what he thinks they need but actual help. He gives hope to the hopeless ones, the ones that have been cast out. He takes the outsiders and makes them more than insiders. He makes them family. This is a hopeless place where there was only hostility and terrorism, fear and darkness and hatred. No one would pass there, yet Jesus went directly there. And this is a picture of what Jesus Christ has done for us when he stepped into human history to make our greatest problem his problem. Except he's a savior who can deal with it and we can't. I want you to know that Jesus cares deeply about your fear. And he has the power and the authority to change any life circumstance that you may face. Absolutely. But if I stop there, I'm not being completely true. He has the power to change anything. But if he doesn't, I know you're going to agree with me. If he doesn't, through his mysterious will, his compassion and his nearness and his presence has the power to calm our hearts, speaking peace be still to, the, to all that is within emotionally and within our soul, sustaining us through the storm. Sometimes he'll stop the storm. Sometimes he'll call it off and we're free. Other times he says, no, 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 you're going to learn something through this, but I'm with you. Let's go together. 
I think we go a little bit too far when we just stop there. We, we have to see that the reality is when you read Hebrews, there's some disciples that followed closely and they were sawn in half. So it doesn't always end well. But Jesus was with that guy that was sawn in half through the storm. So I don't understand how God works and what he changes and what he doesn't change, but I know that his presence changes everything in some way. Outside, it can still be rolling. Outside, it can still be chaos. But inside, there can still be peace because of who he is and what he does and the power that he has. Even the demonic world, even the true enemy begs him for mercy. Now, I remember as a kid when, man, the thunderstorms would roll through North Carolina, the mountains of North Carolina. Lightning, thunder, pouring rain, just torrents of rain. And I'll be terrified, man, especially when that, that one burst of thunder or lightning or whatever it is. I just know that I still don't, even as an adult, know what that loud bang is sometimes. I think it's when lightning hits the earth, but it could be thunder. I don't know. Anyway, maybe you can help me here. But it's that loud crack, like the, not just the, the rolling, but the crack, man. I wake up and I go running into my parents' room and I, I'm, I'm terrified. So I bring that same terror to my parents and my dad doesn't act like Jesus. He acts, he matches my, my, my panic and he comes up swinging at me, you know, oh dad, it's me, whoa, you know, and he, that's actually really, really true. Um, my mom is safer to wake up, right? But I wanted to be on my dad's side of the bed because I felt like my dad was stronger and I knew that if I could be near my dad that I could feel safe. The same, like if he sent me back to my room, I wouldn't be able to sleep because the storm was still rolling. But if I could lay down beside my dad on a little cot that he would make with me, the storm would still be going. But somehow I could go right to sleep because I felt safe. There's something about being with my dad that made me feel safe, whether the storm was stopping or not. And for me as a parent, man, I hate it when my kids hurt. As soon as hurt comes, I want to take it. I want to take it away. I want to fix it. I want it to be as if it never happened. And I can't wait until they're better again. I, I want to stop the storm. I want to bring peace and calm. I never want it to even show up. I want to feel like I can protect. I want to feel like my dad can protect. But in reality, there's no protection that my dad has over the storm. But he can be with me. With Jesus, you get both. We come to Jesus as the terrified little child. And his presence changes everything, and he has the power over the storm. This is why he came. And my prayer is that you allow this truth to speak into what it is that you're facing today, knowing that he is aware, and he's near, and he's drawn to you. I mean, I believe if you're hearing this, it's because he's, he's pulling you close. He is compassionate. He is Savior. He is good. He saves. He rescues. And he can be trusted. He's not from someone who's been impacted personally, deeply, significantly by Jesus Christ. I can tell you personally, it's not a waste of time to pursue Jesus. And it's not a waste of faith. He's good for it. My prayer is that you would trust him. 
Jesus has the authority and power over physical illnesses, the spiritual realm, and nature. He has yet to find his match. And my friend, you're not the challenge that you think you are. He can handle it. May we as a church build our 2015 upon this Jesus, the Jesus who can do anything, the Jesus who doesn't understand the word impossible. And may we build upon this Jesus alone. I believe that if we build our 2015 and as we press into next week's sermon, if we build 2015 on anything else, it's the most dangerous thing we could do as a church in 2015. Let me pray for us. Jesus, thank you that these things are true of you. Thank you that you can handle anything. Thank you that you do bring freedom to those who are captive, hope to those who are hopeless, life to those who are dead. Lord, thank you that you are the ultimate game changer. Lord, you are the ultimate one who stands above all other heroes and Lord, Lord, professing gods, and you, Lord, you, you put them to open shame through your finished work on our behalf. Lord, you are so other than anything else that we can experience. My prayer is that, Lord, you would protect us in 2015 from drifting away from you. Lord, please, please be our hero. Please individually be, uh, be our heroes, be our hero. As a church, be our hero. Lord, let us pursue you and, and get to know you more and grow to appreciate you more. Lord, make us more childlike in how we think of you. Lord, let us, let us see for who you really are. And Lord, for those who are experiencing deep trouble and pain and oppression and fear and anxiety, Lord, I just ask that you prove yourself there and near. And I do ask you to deliver them, deliver them in your name. Lord, stop the storm. But Lord, if you choose not to through your mysterious will, help them trust you and know that you're near with them through that storm. Lord, we love you and we thank you. Please be with us in Christ's name. Amen.